This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley. March is Women's History Month, and on Perspectives this week, we are honored to have as our guest, Stacey Abrams. As you all know, Ms. Abrams ran for Georgia governor last year. And Ms. Abrams, I'm gonna start with a personal question, if you don't mind. Of course not. How did you reconcile in your head and your heart the outcome of the election last year? Well, I began by doing my non-concession speech, which I think was incredibly important because one of the responsibilities we have is to set the standards by which we intend to let the world operate and how we intend to operate. I believe in voting rights. I believe that people should have an opportunity to speak their truth and to select their leaders. I do not believe that was fairly done in 2018. And so my head and my heart were sad. My heart told me to do what I knew to be best. And my head said, you need to think about how to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. And so we've launched two organizations to address those issues, Fair Fight Action, which is our voter protection and electoral integrity organization. And coming in the next few weeks will be Fair Count, which is an organization that is designed to make certain that hard to count populations, communities of color, the poor, children, that they are included in the 2020 census. So tell me how those uh, things are, are going to work. Fair Fight Action is a 501c4, and it also has a hybrid pack that's attached to it. But the C4 is doing the bulk of the work, and that is one, using litigation to compel a correction in our electoral system. Right now, Georgia has a very effective voter suppression system in place. Using some legal means and some mismanagement, we have seen thousands of people disenfranchised. And we believe that the system itself is under attack, and therefore the system itself has to be rectified. That's the first piece. And so we filed federal litigation that lays out in extraordinary detail the ways that voting does not work for everyone in Georgia who's legally eligible to vote. Uh, second is legislation. We have been fighting for better legislation and fighting against what we see to be egregious forms of legislation, such as uh, HB 361, which is, I'm sorry, 316, which is a bill that will allow the state of Georgia to spend $150 million on a system that multiple states have said cannot be counted upon. Uh, but even worse, it is a system that will put money into the pockets likely of allies of the governor. And we know they're allies because he's hired their former lobbyist and former advisor to serve as his chief counsel and his deputy chief of staff. So this is the voting machines bill. The voting right. machines bill. And and these are machines that we know are hackable. We know are overly expensive for what they do. And we know they do not provide a readable uh, paper record, which is what we've been asking for. And any time I can agree with FreedomWorks, which is one of the most conservative organizations in the country, we agree that it's a waste of money. We agree that it is not the best outcome for the citizens of Georgia. And we agree that false information was given about the cost long term for the state and for voters. Uh, because when counties have to pay for these machines in the upcoming years, they're going to have to raise property taxes likely to make meet those obligations for a system they can't count on. And that means Georgians aren't going to be any better off, but we're going to be $150 million poorer, and that's just the starting price tag. 
But getting back to fair fight, it's litigation, it's legislation, but most fundamentally, it's ag- advocacy. We know that voting is a right, but it's connected to the policies we want. And the reason I'm so engaged in this conversation is that I understand how critical the policies that flow from our votes are. And that's why we've been engaged in the conversation about MARTA, the Affordable Care Act, making certain that the issues that are standing out there that really govern people's lives, that they have the right to be heard in those issues. That being said, do you have an opinion on the so-called heartbeat bill that is uh, moving through the legislature? I, I think that bill is a forced pregnancy bill. Most women do not know they're pregnant until after six weeks, which means this is essentially a ploy that would criminalize doctors, would criminalize women, and will unfortunately accomplish nothing other than making Georgia be seen as a hyper-conservative state, which means it will also drive away business. And while I've always stood on the side of advocacy for advocacy's sake, I'm deeply disappointed in our business community and their silence on this issue. No one's going to relocate to a state where they know that if they are pregnant, that their decision-making is stripped away from them before they have that knowledge. Who is going to want to live in a state where a conservative group of men and some women, but largely men, get to govern the bodily autonomy of women? That is wrong. And so I've been a very staunch opponent of that bill. And I, again, am deeply disappointed that the silence that reigns throughout the state about how we are shifting in a very conservative direction when this last election demonstrated that at the very least, we are a center state. We are certainly not hard right. And the leadership that we see right now belies the voices of the people. Is that bill one in particular, should it be signed into law, one that may find its way debated before the U.S. Supreme Court? I think it's absolutely designed as bait for the Supreme Court. Uh, The intention, I think, of the authors is to make this a bill that can be used to undo and undermine a woman's right to choose. Uh, The current governor made it made no uh, mystery about the fact that he supports this type of egregious, offensive and unscientific legislation. And I think it's a deeply problematic space that we find ourselves in when half of the population of Georgia is being silenced for political gains and for for political bait. There is criticism from your opponents. Imagine that. I am shocked. But anyway, there is criticism that you are, in their words, that you are, as a result of the last election, quote, the sorest loser in American politics. Uh, What do you say to that? (laughs) Well, I would say two things. One, I didn't lose. I may not be the governor, but we accomplished every goal that we had, save one. And I believe that even that uh, inability to actually occupy the governor's mansion is under question and certainly should be under review. But let's go to the core of the issue. There have been longstanding tropes about how one reacts to the outcome of an election. And by and large, I agree with them. I agree that for the for sustaining our democracy, it is important that we trust our democracy. But what we saw happen in Georgia was an an extraordinary example of how that trust breaks down. When the person in charge of guaranteeing the sanctity of an election also contends in that election, controls that election, 
and harms access in that election. The strongest form of democracy, but most, most importantly, one of, I think, the truest forms of citizenship is to say that's not right. Should I be successful in our lawsuit, I will not become the governor of Georgia. There is no personal benefit to me. What I'm doing now is designed to make certain that no one else has to question the outcome. And we have to remember, this isn't a partisan issue. I, I'm certainly in a very partisan space. But Dan Gassaway, who is a Republican from Habersham County, is facing yet another election for the same primary he ran in in May 2018 because of the incompetence and malfeasance of the Secretary of State's office and how that flows down to the administration of elections on the local level. He has now twice had to sue to have his elections properly administered. So we have to understand that my outcry is not a cry of sore loser. It's a cry of good citizenship. We cannot sit idly by and allow our democracy to be unraveled by ambition and incompetence. It has to be sustained by good citizens who are willing to stand up and do what's right. I've sort of danced around it since we started our conversation here, bringing you in because March is Women's History Month. But let me just go ahead and put it out there. Are we going to make any news in our interview today? Is there any announcement you need to make? Anything you'd like to share? <laughs> make me a journalistic rising star. Your star has risen already. But here, here's where I am. I know there's, there's a lot of conversation about what's next for me. Yeah. Uh, most of it is happening in my head. I am figuring out what I want to do. And, and here's the rubric. Ambition for ambition's sake is not a reason to run for office. I will run for office again because I believe it's important to have people in our political sphere who want to do the work. But I am being disingenuous if I run for an office simply because it's available. I'd thought about the governor's office for years because it does the work I think we need to do in our state. And I was very clear in my campaign about what that works look, looks like. What I had not given a lot of consideration to was running for the U.S. Senate. When that opportunity presented itself, I made the very conscious choice to do two things. One is to actually sit with the idea. I was very angry and very sad and bitter. And those are bad places to be when you're making life altering decisions. But I also need to recognize that if I choose not to take this on I need to do so in a timely fashion so that those who can be successful have time to be successful. And so my first responsibility is to decide, do I want to run for the U.S. Senate? Once that decision is made, I will turn to the next set of decisions. I've been encouraged to think about running for president of the United States. I still have a deep interest in the governor's office because of its capacity and the work that I know could be done. And we're seeing what happens when you don't have that person in office right now. And so those are two set conversations I will have next. But these are not a cascading set of conversations. I'm not going to decide one because of what it means for the next. I need to decide, do I want the job of being a U.S. senator? It's an extraordinary opportunity. It is an amazing platform. And currently the person occupying that job is not doing his job. He is not talking to the people. And he is not fairly and adequately representing the citizens of Georgia. But my responsibility is to figure out, do I want to be the person who does that job because I want to do that job for itself and for a long time? Because the other reality is no job should be a stepping stone to the next. You need to want to do the job you're applying for. That being said, uh, there have been reported a number of so-called timelines or deadlines in your head that you were going to let the community know what your plans are. Mm -hmm. Where are we on your timeline? So I'm going to make a decision. My goal is the end of March. 
uh, once I made that announcement, I actually heard back from my publishers who published my book last year. It was called Minority Leader. They decided to release it in paperback form as lead from the outside. They chose the date of March 26th. (laughs) So uh, that has pushed my timeline a little bit because during my first campaign, I was unable to properly uh, push for my book and to do the work that I needed to do as a writer and as an author with their house. And so I made the commitment that I'm going to absolutely focus the attention during the first couple of weeks of release on making sure people know about Lead from the Outside. And that can't be accomplished if if I'm also bringing in my political space at the same time. Uh, Because Lead from the Outside to me is an incredibly important book. It's not just about my political work. It's about how we make choices, how we deal with stumbles, how we manage ambition and how you do that when you come from a community that may not always have access to power. Uh, a reporter called it, you know, lean in for the rest of us, you know, for people without power. And that to me is so important because of the work I've done in politics, in the civic space and in business. I want people to know about this book for the book's sake and not step on that information with a public de- decision about running for Senate. And that's your, is that your first nonfiction work? It's the first uh, book I've written that's nonfiction, yes. How was that for you? Well, I wrote it while I was running for governor. I would say, do not try this at home. Uh, <laughs> it was, I, I was, I'm privileged to have the capacity to be a writer. And I was able to organize my time to get this done. It was fun in some ways because it allowed me to concretize and write down the steps I take. I mean, one of the sort of Uh, interesting things about the book is that you have homework. I I have uh, worksheets and uh, tips and tricks for you because I think often when we see these leadership books or how-to guides, they are great except there's no real way to do what they say unless you're actually in those spaces. And mine is more of a primer. If you have ambition, here's how you think about what ambition is. Here's how you turn it into something you can actually achieve. If you've made mistakes, here's how you grapple with failure and navigate that. And I spend a lot of time talking about ways I've failed. If you deal with debt issues, uh, which I've publicly dealt with, here are the things I've used to help, you know, dig my way out. And here's what you think about and how you manage the competing parts of yourself in ways that it doesn't diminish your capacity for leadership, but recognizes the reality that a lot of us live with, which is that we have complicated lives and stuff happens. And so I'm excited about the book because it allows me to tell those things. And writing it while I was running for office was really interesting because I got to read my book <laughs> and it prepared me for November of 2018. When I did not win, I had to go back to what I said about the challenges we face and how you manage disappointment. And it created space for me to figure out what to do next. And so you said that book is out on the 26th. March 26th, Lead from the Outside. Tell us about this thank you tour you did. So we're still doing it. One of the goals of my campaign was to tell people that they were seen, to say that if you trusted me enough to get involved in our campaign and speak up for your values and your needs, that I was going to listen and I was going to see you. Uh, What we're doing now is going back and saying thank you because we had unprecedented turnout in the state of Georgia. More than 1.9 million voters, the largest number a Democrat has ever achieved in the state of Georgia. But more importantly, it was the composition of the turnout. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139 percent. 
We increased black turnout by 40 percent. We also, you know, I became the first Democrat since we believe Bill Clinton to achieve more than 25 percent of the white vote for Democrats. That's huge because it proves that we can truly build a multiracial coalition. And we are the, you know, my campaign was the only one that did that, that built a truly representative multiracial coalition. I want to say thank you, but I also want to say thank you to people for trusting in the system, for believing that voting matters. And we link that to, that thank you tour to Fair Fight because, number one, I'm a private citizen. And as a private citizen, I'm saying thank you. But as the chair of the board of Fair Fight Action, I want them to know that because their voices weren't fully heard because of our electoral system, that they still have work to do. And so do I. Because there is still that work to do. And because your success in the 2018 governor's race catapulted you, my word, not theirs, squarely onto the national stage as such that you said everything is on the table. Um, how are you dealing with that? <laughs> well, Rising star of the Democratic Party, <laughs> as they say. Well, I, I would say in the campaign led to my opportunity to serve as the Democratic responder to the State of the Union address. And and that gave me an opportunity to really lay out my theory of the case, that we are a nation of good, that at our core, we haven't lost our sense of capacity to serve one another, our obligation to build together, but that we face real challenges. And that means we need real leadership to revitalize those of us who felt lost for the last few years. Uh, but there's also a part that requires that we remember that we are one common union and that while we may have polarized beliefs in our politics, that should not divide our humanity and that we have an opportunity in this next election cycle to be better people. And that means remembering what brought us together. It's why I was so proud to do the Super Bowl ad that I did with Natalie Crawford. Natalie is a Republican. There is no question about that. <laughs> Natalie and I met through ACCG, the county commissioner's organization, and we may have some moments where we work together, but we do not share ideological belief, but we share a common belief in the sanctity of the right to vote. And what I want is for us to continue to remember that, yes, we have divergent political beliefs and ideological beliefs and true policy differences, but that you can have policy differences and still have common cause to support who we are as Americans. And so being on this national stage means I get to have that conversation with more than just my family. Uh, it means that I get to give voice to people who will never find themselves in the position I'm in. But it also means that I have a stronger responsibility to be careful about what I do and what I say and how I say it, because I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for that woman who voted for the very first time in 2018 or tried to vote and found that her vote didn't count because she was given a provisional ballot because there was a glitch in the database that could have been fixed. But instead of getting to cast her ballot, she was told to you know, go home. She deserves a voice. And this is a national opportunity to say that this isn't just endemic to Georgia. This is happening in North Dakota and Florida and California and New York. And that we as a nation have an opportunity to return to our core values and say that we believe in the right to vote for every eligible citizen and that we're going to work hard to make it right. 
I know we're running out of time, so I'm going to rapid fire some rapid fire some questions your way. Uh, I want to go back one to your opportunity to deliver the response to the State of the Union uh, earlier this year. Is that something you ever thought you would get an opportunity to do? How did that come to be? <laughs> Senator just picks up the phone and says, hey, Stacy, we got an idea. I was in D.C. I had a chance to see uh, Senator Schumer and uh, the leader said, we'd like for you to do this. It was agreed upon between me and Speaker Pelosi. Will you do it? And my answer was yes. Simple enough. Georgia, because of your success in turning out the voters who turned out in the last election for governor, has that made Georgia a purple state, a state in play? Absolutely. Not only did we transform the electorate, we actually flipped House and Senate seats. We took a congressional seat that was once a legacy seat, and we have transformed the politics of Georgia. The issue is making sure our leaders recognize that we're in a very new place. As a result of your being on the national political stage, speaking for as many voters as you have an opportunity uh, for whom to speak, you're having lots of conversations with people who have declared and are in the race in 2020. Uh, When you take those meetings, what is it that you want those people to know? There are two things we talk about, or three. One, that voter suppression is real, and I need them to talk about it all the time. Republicans talk about voter fraud like it's real and it's not, but they say it with such emphasis that it sounds like the truth. We have to tell the truth about voter suppression because it is real and it's corroding our democracy. Two, that Georgia is a swing state that people are going to have to pay attention to the South and Georgia is going to be the fulcrum for that conversation. And I expect every one of them to make more than one trip back to Georgia. And number three, I offer my support. Uh, I am here to help anyone who wants to know more about Georgia and know more about voter suppression and about the policies that I think will help make the country stronger. One of the things I read about you recently was that what you did in your race sort of built an electoral college type model for the state of Georgia where you turned out voters where Democrats have never gone to turn out mm-hmm. voters before. Is that a model that you think other Democrats in other states are going to seek to replicate? Are I, you think hearing they, that? I think they should. Georgia is uniquely positioned because of our demography and the fact that we have clear uh, pulse points that we can sh- we can demonstrate these are changes that have happened. But in every state, uh, particularly in the South and Southwest, we see that transition happening. I believe every Democratic candidate, every Democrat should talk to everyone the issue is not do you talk to everyone, is what do you expect from those conversations? And sometimes the expectation simply is that, that they hear us. The better outcome is that they vote with us. But that means going to people who normally don't vote and convincing them that voting actually matters. And that's what I want Democrats to learn from our campaign. What are your parents talking to you about these days? What do they want you to do? They want to know what I'm doing with my life. Um, but <laughs> they are they have always told every one of us, all six of us, that their highest praise is that we're happy doing what we do. Their expectation is not that we pick a certain path. I mean, I've got an anthropologist, an evolutionary biologist, a lawyer, a social worker. We run the gamut. But my parents have always wanted us to be good at what we do and to be happy in the work we do. Are you happy now? I'm getting there. Getting there. That's an honest answer. Pro. Picks up the phone, calls you. I want to come down and help. You guys did the two events, the one in Cobb, the one in DeKalb. Is she checking in with you frequently? Is she your new BFF? I wouldn't. I do, no one will ever replace Gail, uh, but she has been kind enough to check on me a couple of times, and it's been incredibly meaningful. So, Leader Abrams, your book is due out March 26th. Again, it is called? Lead from the Outside, How to Build Your Future and Make Real Change. And you want readers to take what away from it? It is a how-to guide for using where you are to get to where you want to be. And it's for anyone who feels themselves to be on the outside. 
that can be race, gender, religion, economics, sexual orientation, but anything that makes you think that you may not have as much power as you might imagine. My point is that we have more power than we know. All right. And again, just because I have to ask, and we always ask the same question 18 different ways. Today, you don't really have anything to say about reports that there's already a candidate and a ticket out there and you've agreed to be on it. I am happy to meet with every single person running for presidency because I want them all to know that George is the place to be. Stacey Abrams, I appreciate you every time you come in. Thank you so much, Condes. This has been amazing. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, MyAndalusCondo29 on Twitter, or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.